Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got an interesting discussion tonight. We're going to have perspective philosophy. And we have JF. We're going to be talking genes versus memes. So it should be very interesting tonight. All right. So today I would like to invite people to think about the categories of things that exist in this universe and how they are good at pursuing into the future their own existence and what makes them good. The first category of things are things that have a set duration and they expire. And we know they expire and it's kind of made that way. So we can include in this dairy products that have a date at which they become not good anymore and at some point not even dairy products, not even consumable. Uh, but this includes also tennis matches. A tennis match, once it has happened, it has happened forever. And there's no way to go back into the match and change it. And if you weren't there, well, you can see maybe a video copy of it, but you can't be part of the match anymore. The second class of things are things that are built to last as long as they can. But ultimately, they will succumb to the second law of thermodynamics, and in that sense, they're not so different from the first class of things. We can count in these things rocks on which some inscriptions have been made, which may survive 5,000 years, 10,000 years, but eventually they will get polished out of existence and they will not carry the knowledge that they were meant to carry anymore. The third class of things are things that leave copies into the future but they require the will of other things to copy them. Uh, this includes, for example, pieces of paper that can go through a photocopier. They, they will have copies made into the future. But if no one cares about passing them into the photocopier, then they have no way really to get themselves into the photocopier. And human culture is part of this third category. It is uh, something that can carry into the future, that can have some causal effect into the future, but only at the will of people, because some bad genes will, uh, some bad memes will not get carried into the future because they are taboo, because people don't like talking about them, or because they bring no special utility to those bearing those beliefs. So th this third class of thing is includes memes and human culture, and it includes the things that we tend to do in society, which we have the impression will have some causal influence into the future. But when you think about it, those causal influences are very limited. These things that we spread into the, into the future, other than our own children, they will spread only to the extent that it serves someone. Sure, the, the original guy who invented fire has spread maybe an idea that made its way up to us. And today we can still light fires up and we can still enjoy marshmallows into the fire being roasted. But the causal influence of this individual who invented fire has only been allowed into the future because our genes were benefiting from it. 
At every step of the way, our genes were benefiting from mastering fire making as opposed to not mastering it. And in that way, we are living off of the energy of this initial man, off of his ID, but we are reproducing with our own babies. In a way, the original inventor of the fire, if he didn't leave viable decent himself, he is a cuckold. He is someone who has built a nest to warm humanity and to warm the babies of other people in humanity. Now, what do we mean when we say a cuckold? A cuckold is, uh, well, if you go into evolutionary biology and look at the relation between birds, and there's a bunch of birds called cuckoos, what they do is they go, they go drop the eggs of their babies into the nest of other birds, and they hope that the other birds will care for their babies. They will deliver the parental care that their babies need to become adults who in turn, as adults, will parasite other nests of other cuckolds. This is exactly what happens when you leave useful knowledge into humanity that is used by others. That's unless you make your own babies and you transmit your useful knowledge to those babies. But other than this, if you merely spread technological developments into the universe, all you're doing is building nests for other genes, other people, competitors, who will eventually outcompete you with your own inventions. Now we can talk about the fourth class of things, and we are part of this. Biological beings, things that are evolutionary. So unlike the third category, things that are evolutionary leave copies of themselves into the future, along with all of the equipment to sustain a new life and a range of future changes of conditions that it can handle through evolution and that it can maintain itself through reproduction. This class of things, we are so lucky to be part of those things because this is the only class of things that can not only sustain itself indefinitely into the future, and it's been maintaining itself for 4 billion years on planet Earth. Genes have been able to not only sustain themselves, but also create other versions of themselves, mutate into other things that were better than the original genes. This fourth class of things is, it is the greatest honor for anyone to be part of this fourth class of things, because it needs you have a ticket into a lasting effect into the universe. And I find it extremely sad that a lot of people are being encouraged today to abandon the reproductive lifestyle, to turn themselves from the fourth position, the greatest category of things, biological reproductive being, and to abandon this reproduction for some narcissistic desire, some conception they have in their head of I'm a great person and perhaps I can become a singer or perhaps I can chop my balls because I want to be some other gender or some other things that I'm not happy with what biology and nature gave me. It is so sad that we are creating conditions for people to voluntarily leave category number four to become only merely number three. Now, on leaving, 
unleaving cultural uh, heritage into the world. Let's talk about how unfit it is. First, the odds that you will be contributing to something important in human culture, science, or art are extremely low. There may be, what, a thousand people who have significantly influenced science, maybe at best 10,000 who have influenced science and art, you wouldn't be able to name them all. Most of them, well, the, the, the very small fraction of us that succeeds at being part of those who will have influenced the world, makes it so that from your perspective, as a regular human being, you have 0.00001% chance of having any lasting influence. And then we can talk about this lasting influence. How, how can you guarantee that it will be a positive lasting influence? Let's take, for example, the invention of the birth pill. A beautiful invention, isn't it? Well-intended, offering freedom of control over one's reproductive capabilities. But eventually, the birth pill can have civilizational destructive effects. The birth pill could result in demographic change that make the sustainability of Western civilization in question. So you can start with good contributions to society, but you don't know how bad they will become. You don't know ultimately how much you're going to hurt the future. Another point, the memes you leave behind will be repurposed by other evolutionarily successful lineages as they see fit, and you will become their, their cuckold. Uh, if, you, if you contribute anything to humanity, people will be weeding out what is bad for them, and people will be retaining what is good for them. And so ultimately, you are not leaving a durable imprint through human culture, other than what other genes around you find to be to their interest. Fourth, memes are not sustainable without baby-making. So the only way your ideas and your influence on human culture will sustain themselves into the future is if there are containers for their existence. And the only way they ca there can be containers for their existence into the future is if there are human brains into the future. So never make memes if you haven't ensured that you are making genes first. Make sure that there are human brains deployed into the future that can sustain the transmission of your knowledge. And finally, I've already mentioned it earlier, but just formally making it a point, leaving memes behind rather than genes is a ultimate form of cuckoldry. It is the building of nests, the building of, of comfortable worlds for other beings that will exploit it to their maximum. So, I would like, as a conclusion to my opening statement, and how much time do I have, uh, Converse? Um, just wrap it up. You have a couple minutes, but yeah, go ahead and wrap it up. All right. So wrapping it up, um, I would like to point to the oldest writings we have, because if you think that you can have a lasting effect on human culture through memes, then this should be miserable by what is the earliest writings we have. Well, it goes back to some of the earliest writing being the Proto-Elamite tablets, written in Proto-Elamite, estimated at around 3,200 before Jesus Christ. So at best, 
the oldest writings we have are 5,200 years old. Most of the writings of the time and the times preceding have been destroyed. We can't even decrypt those tablets. But even if we would be able to decrypt them, we would probably find what we often find when we decrypt ancient hieroglyphs and linear B and linear A. We find texts like, John the farmer trades two piles of manure against one male goat, signed Apu the scribe. My message today to you is make babies, don't be Apu the scribe, don't be the one who thinks that the messages they launch into human culture will be lasting. They won't. In comparison to this, a, a writing from 5,200 years, which is the oldest one we have, compare the last common ancestor of the eukaryotic life forms of today. We know it existed about 2.1 billion years ago. We know that this is 400,000 ti times older than the last human writing. We know its genome. We know what it looked like. We can tell what were the codes in its DNA, what were they creating in terms of RNA segments, in terms of proteins, how these proteins were functioning. In other words, there's a little bacteria-like cell that lived 2.1 billion years ago, and we have received more message through its genes than we ever did from 5,200 years ago, from any hieroglyphs that we ever found. Human culture doesn't last. Human genes last forever. Make babies, don't believe the anti-reproductive propaganda, choose genes. All right, thanks so much for that. Um, JF, if you would, right before Perspective Philosophy starts his uh, opening, if you would, there's some people in the, the comment section that are saying, like, can I, we get just a general layman's version of what's this debate, like, what's the topic? And then, so I want you to just give, like, maybe a 10 or 15 second version of that, and then I'm going to let Perspective Philosophy say do that as well. Absolutely. So today we're debating whether genes are better uh, carriers of our messages into the future, better things to leave behind, rather than books or IDs or human culture or technological contributions. In other words, what, what, what is the best way to leave something into the universe? Okay, thanks so much. Now we're going to kick it over to Perspective Philosophy. Um, do you want to maybe start with that same thing? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Can you hear us okay? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, sweet. So, uh, yeah, uh, I thought this debate was about whether it's better to leave behind technology or like memes as it is, you know, something that is um, essentially reproduced by an individual, something created by an individual, constructed by an individual, but not necessarily reprodu re reproduction, not genetic reproduction, biological reprodu re reproduction. And so that's what I thought this de debate was about. Um, and I, I still think it is. I think that's pretty much where we're going. When he says, and he says, like, is it better to leave a message to the future? Well, that's a separate question. That, I mean, that, that essentially presupposes that uh, essentially that the end is some sort of longevity uh, and that that's what is better. Well, I'm actually here to ask the question, what do you mean by better? Of course, because I'm a philosopher and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this straight into the meta. So when we'll talk about reproduction, what do we even mean when we look at it as something good? 
why do we see reproduction as something good? When we say that it is better to leave memes or genes, why would it be better to leave either or? That is one of the primary questions of this debate, because until we have a solid foundation for what the word good means in this scenario, we aren't actually going to be able to hash this out. We're going to talk two separate languages, and you're going to argue for some sort of Darwinistic uh, biological imperative uh, relating to the reproduction of genes, which is by and large, descriptive. It, re genes reproduce themselves and they don't necessarily have a prescriptive case to be made there. And actually the argument that I would be presenting in relation to that uh, reproductive, uh, we could call it a, a fallacy if you like, would be the naturalistic fallacy, the argument, the appeal to nature, as it's, as it's so rightfully called, because there is nothing in nature that tells us what is right or wrong in and of itself. Nature does not inform us about what rightness and wrongness is. It is something that we discover as minds, as something we apply to nature. We, we can find, for example, value in our experiences and we can create ethical systems to express that value. I'm very much a moral realist, so I'm going to see that there is a foundational uh, value within our phenomenological experiences in our day-to-day -day lives and what we experience, like pain, pleasure, and so on. But in terms of our analysis of genetic code, If I murder is wrong, it never actually explains why I shouldn't steal or whether we should have laws or education systems or, or anything along those lines. All it does within a, a biological framework embedded into a protein structure, that, that, that is essentially it. And so when I look at the reproduction of genes, there is nothing valuable about it necessarily unless we take the experience of those individuals from which genes are a formative part. When I understand a genetic structure, I understand it to exist within a, a, a being, a conscious experiencing being who has a value relationship with the world. When I talk of a gene structure being bad, I talk about it as if, you know, something is causing harm to that being. A case in point would be something like perhaps Huntington's disease, a genetic disorder that can lead to quite an agonizing death. And so when we talk about genetic modification, we may talk about helping people with that kind of condition. We wouldn't necessarily say their genetic structure is good. We wouldn't necessarily say it is bad. What we would say is that it is bad in relation to their experiences. It is There is something wrong with it in terms of an ethical foundation, that there is, there is something from which if it was changed, it would lead to something better. And this is why the words better uh, or worse in this scenario are so vitally important because the reproduction of genes is not always going to lead to a better world. An individual reproducing en masse dependent upon resources available could lead to catastrophic self-destruction and even the elimination of their own genes. Uh, the reproduction of genes uh, given someone's economic state in life, cancer, agonizing pain for, for trying to look after a child whilst you yourself do not have the means to look after that child. Then there is the responsibility to the child themselves. Why would I reproduce if I am going to place them into a scenario which is not necessarily going to be beneficial to them? Reproduction is not valuable to find out. Now, value on things being finite or the, the eternity of genes. Well, that's not necessarily the, the case anyway. But what makes them my genes would be the first question I would ask. Why should I think of my descendant as 
mind. As you would know, genetic reproduction leads to a radically different gene mate with a with a a female, as it as it uh, you know biologically. If me and my girlfriend would have a baby, we we would uh, we would produce function of our genetic code. It wouldn't be me. It would not be her, and it certainly would be its own being. It would be its own possession. And so, when I talk about the reproduction of my genes, why necessarily propagate myself into the world? The expression of my will into the world. There is nothing about me in that child except for some random aspects of information, random characteristic, char uh, genetic characteristics from which I did not choose myself. I am quote unquote cooked by nature because it chooses for me what aspects of myself I want to pass on. Now, there might be things I don't want to pass on. For example, I'm not particularly fond of certain aspects of, uh, let's say, my physical form. Let's say my curly hair. Let's say I did not want my child to have curly hair. I am now cooked by nature because my child has been born with curls. And I, I, and what am I supposed to do about it? Because I'm pretty sure honor killings for children having curly hair is usually banned. Although I may consider it, depending on how curly my, how curly my Ben's hair is. We'll get into that. Uh, <laughs> um Technology serving others makes us cooks, apparently. Uh, I, I love this because I don't understand at all what you mean by a cook in this scenario. Because a cook is usually a derogatory term used to describe another man uh, sleeping with uh, essentially a, a wife or girlfriend or something like that. Um, and it, it's used to essentially uh, demean and undermine the self, the identity of another individual. And that's what's important here. Identity. Like, how am I at all being demeaned and exploited by a future generation from which I gift a technology? If I produce something for my society, for my nation, for, for my family in the future, why is it that I am being used in some way? And why can't we look at it the exact opposite way around? Why can't I be using them? That is exactly what Nietzsche did in the genealogy of morality. He saw the expression of morality used to manipulate other individuals' behavior going through history to be a direct form of manipulation against current generations from prior ones. Tradition and history manipulating and cooking individuals now. And he uses similar terminology to talk about how technology can do that to these individuals. The long dead historical ancestors of these individuals, or perhaps they never reproduced, are having a greater impact upon these individuals' lives in the world that they live in than they themselves have. And that is what Nietzsche argued in many of his works, especially the genealogy of morality. And it's something that I think you're going to have to uh, deal with. Now, something that definitely... Um, sort of struck me as contradictory was the notions of mutation into something better. Well, how could it become something better? Am I not trying to reproduce myself and express myself? What, what is the standard here? If the gene is reproducing itself, is it, re is it reproducing itself towards a certain goal? And is that goal not the, the good in this scenario? Because if, if gene mutations are being judged against the standard, well, then that standard has to be separate from the reproductive states. Because otherwise, the reproduction would be the standard. The gene reproduced more. Therefore, it is better. It wouldn't turn into something better 
the only way that you would be able to say that is if it was looping. The gene turned into something which reproduces more and therefore is better because it reproduces more. At the end of the day, like you know, you, all you can point to is reproduction being a, a good in and of itself. Something which I think is firmly defeated by Hume's law or Hume's guillotine. You cannot derive an ought from an is. Just because re genes re do reproduce doesn't mean that they ought to or that we ought to propagate their reproduction. You see that it's narcissism to seek non-reproductory ends. So if I decide to change gender, you see that as some sort of narcissism. I thought that was genuinely disgusting. Like that, that made me physically repulsed. I cannot believe that you would come on here and you would say something about trans individuals when this debate has nothing to do with trans people in the grand scheme of things, right? Who can reproduce by the way. So, you know, uh, trans people are essentially being thrown under the bus as somehow morally inferior because they seek to modify themselves. I think that's appalling. And I think that it just shows the ignorance of this debate. You overstate genius. You, you think that there's only a few thousand scientists who make a difference. I mean, like the reality is, is that the field of science is actually massively encompassing and requires a lot of individuals. There's more than a few thousand scientists working in CERN, for God's sake. The, the like, You talk about bad technology, but what about bad genes? You never mentioned bad genes at all. You don't even really respect a notion of goodness in relation to self-consciousness. Self-consciousness, my identity itself is a form of technology built up over countless generations producing language and allowing me to have dyotic experiences of time, experiences of causation. Being able to do biology itself is a technological advancement, which has allowed me to even have this discussion. The philosophy is, is a technology all of which is necessary for me to even be able to engage in this discussion. Yet you seem to think somehow that a, a, a dumb genetic code reproducing itself uh, en masse without consideration of the beings that are being reproduced somehow leads to something better. I just don't even know what the word better means anymore. Do I want a mediocre society that maybe goes on forever full of, um, let's say, brutes and barbarians uh, murdering and killing each other, causing suffering to themselves? Or do I want a technologically advanced society that may have less individuals, but may have a higher quality of life? You say that technology needs people. I don't think you're wrong. I think technology does need people. But technology is also, in one respect, superior to people. Technology, unlike genes, can be resurrected from an extinct species. And this is an argument that Kevin Kelly makes uh, in relation to what technology wants, as he calls it. Technology is, in and of itself, reproductive the same way that genes are and actually can be mapped onto an evolutionary biology, biological framework, except technology can be reproduced after a species has come to an end. I can go back and I can replicate something that is no longer in production and I can modify it and create a, a, a new descendant in order to fit the needs of, of the society. Now, why is that in and of itself, if, if the foundation is finiteness, the finiteness of any genetic code, single genetic code, is far more likely to go extinct permanently than any technology. And I think the irony of this or this whole thing is that language itself produced the notion of possession. For me to have a notion of mineness, me, I, you know, the ability to have, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, autonomy, but also um, self-direction are entirely linguistic technological advancements. They are applied to this physical form. This physical form has produced them, has, hasn't has produced them naturally. They've been produced artificially through work and through 
conceptualization. Now, what my opponent may say here is that, but oh, all of this is the result of genes. Don't you see your mind is the result of a genetic structure, something that I do not actually agree with. And I, if anyone wants to know why in more detail, they can check out a video I made on it on why I reject material determinism. I'm not a physicalist. And I would say that Kant's argument against um, empiricism is still still holds strong today. We can't understand the world without notions of causation, space and time, which are mentally applied to objects and not abstracted from the world. Arguments about how we understand objects. We do not grasp what an object is by seeing it. We understand an object by applying a concept mentally to it. And in that, analyze it and then better it again. The very field of, of biology and causation as a whole has been constructed by what is supposedly its own effect. It tries to presuppose itself as an object which causes the investigation that we are actually engaged in. Now that actually ends up as a as a as a circular argument. And if you do want to see more about that, you can check out my video as to why I would argue metaphysically it's impossible for notions of causation to explain human behavior. But even if we did accept the physicalist framework, what we would find is that we have absolutely no understanding of where consciousness is derived. We know that it might have something to do with the brain. We're pretty sure it does have something to do with the brain. We don't know how the brain does it. We don't know how it changes the states of individuals. Uh, we've been absolutely incapable of understanding how to produce consciousness ourselves. So yeah, like in terms of neuroscience and the explanations of consciousness, there's no real causal link there that we can fully like look to and explain human behavior with. And Moreover, what we have found is that brain plasticity shows that this relationship is twofold, that consciousness can have a direct effect upon the material structure of the brain itself. And so technology can ultimately change the formulations of the organism uh, in such a way that the genetic structure does not necessarily determine. It can be influenced by environment. It can be influenced by uh, the individual's thought patterns and the decisions that they make in their life. And some even argue that it could even be related to a quantum state of indeterminacy, even on a physicalist framework. Now, I'm an existentialist, so I would say it's indeterminate by definition. So regardless of all of this, why should I promote some arbitrary form of information, some small genetic code uh, from which I do not necessarily associate myself with? It's a part of me, but if I can improve it, I very well might. And... That's because there is a standard outside of genes, which is valuable in and of itself. And that relates to my experience of the world and not necessarily the genetic information, which may facilitate it. So thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much for that. Um, you guys, sorry, there's going to be a little bit of background noise. Um, I cranked up my uh, performance mode on my computer because some people said that the stream might be lagging. So... I got a little bit of fan noise, but luckily I'm not going to be speaking that much. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Perspective Philosophy and JF on genes versus memes. Um, we're going to jump into a 50-minute dialogue, open discussion, and we'll get to the bottom, hopefully, of some of these issues, or at least some of the disagreements. So with that being said, thanks for being here. If it's your first time, please consider hitting that subscribe button, and enjoy. You guys take it away. All right. Well, I think uh, we are up for a very interesting conversation because this was one of the most refined defense I've ever heard. And so I think it's going to be a very, very interesting.
intelligent conversion. How do we do? The world is made of biological beings of the fourth type. You know, that type that evolves, makes copies of itself, leaves parental care to leaves copies of itself into the future. Now, there are some realities that apply to that kind of being that makes me know what they will want and what they will not want. That makes me know what they will turn toward in terms of having interest or having preferences. So I don't define some axis in philosophy or metaphysics that defines what is good or what is bad. I simply witness the fact that there are beings and they will have preferences about what is good and what is bad. And one of these preferences that I expect is that the vast majority of people, as we see is the case, uh, the vast majority of people are lead a happy life when they are reproducing. And when they die, the thing that they most are proud of is the fact that they had babies, that it worked. Uh, they will not think much about their job or about what they've realized at the McDonald's as managers. They will think about the fact that they left viable reproductive adults into the universe. So that's what matters, and it's what the theory of evolution predicts. So I'm not surprised by this. We have It's not a naturalistic fallacy to say People have evolved through the theory of evolution, therefore they are expected to prefer having babies and they would be baited into not having babies by novel stimuli, like the stimuli of the modern world. Okay, so you said that people are proud of reproduction, yeah? Um, why are they proud of it? Why would you say that? I would say that people are proud of reproduction because it's an ideological format. Like people have been indoctrinated for thousands of years. Like the fact that you even point towards people being happy uh, in relation to reproduction is fundamentally a technological innovation from culture. Individuals are culturally, um, culturally indoctrinated into reproduction. And this can be seen because desires necessarily, necessarily don't aren't sublimated in that fashion in that fashion people's sex drives for example pe more and more people in our society are um you know uh, essentially becoming non-reproductive in terms of sex they are taking the pill or they are using some form of contraception or they are essentially you know involved in some i think people are even describing themselves as digisexual um forms of sexual satisfaction which no longer are necessarily tied to the reproductive process and so the biological imperative which is moving them towards reproduction is being sublimated technologically in a different way in order to suit the ends of those individuals involved they see it as a means to an end rather than an end in itself so when you say that most people are happy when they reproduce i clearly don't think that you've met many uh many single mothers who are incredibly stressed trying to work two jobs. I think that the reality of the situation is people are sometimes proud of reproduction, but sometimes they're utterly disappointed. I know very many people that, um, although if you were to question them, are you happy that you had this child? They'll go, of course I am. This child is amazing. It was the best thing ever. And then, you know, many years down the line, they, they may still say it, but ultimately that children are, have turned out to be pretty bad, like narcissistic, abusive, cruel, harsh, 
criminals even. So why why would I necessarily be happy about reproducing something that necessary, which would, without education, without some sort of soul development, uh, if we were to call it, has no real value to the world and even to themselves. They may be self-destructive. If I teach them how to sublimate their desires in a self-destructive way, they will turn out to be negative even in relation to themselves. You say you believe in moral nihilism, yet you talk in words of value. Uh, regardless, and never mind. I would like to hear your argument for no moral nihilism. What? What is well, it? Uh, I mean, this is taking us on a tangent, but okay, I will answer uh, first on the question of happiness. I mean, it's just the studies. It really doesn't matter whether you know a couple of single moms that are unhappy. The studies reveal that the most happy lifestyle in America right now is to be in a religious. Uh, marriage, a, a loyal marriage in which people are still together and they have children. Uh, measures of self-satisfaction are so much higher in that category than any other categories. Uh, so definitely the, the evidence points to uh, the, reproduct the most reproductive lifestyle, which is the monogamous uh, series baby producer, is what makes people happy. Now you ask me what I, why, why do I believe in moral nihilism and how can I talk of value? Well, first it is with the recognition that as a moral nihilist, I recognize that I'm a creature with uh, preferences. I can be a moral nihilist in understanding that nothing is ultimately or objectively good or bad, but that I, as a, as a creature, have preferences about the world and I do. I do prefer sweetie, sweet stuff than non-sweet stuff. I do prefer beefsteak to, uh, to cardboard. That doesn't make me not a moral nihilist. I'm still a moral nihilist because I recognize that these preferences are just, just, sp just springs and mechanisms in my brain that make me like or dislike something. Right. I mean... Ultimately, I'd say that would require an argument in itself that you could say that, that you, you know, you could reject a statement. So I, I think what you're trying to do is say that, like, because of some sort of physicalist explanation of the world, that there are mechanisms in our brain from which we cannot control, that these experiences of value um, are not somehow morally relevant. I just don't necessarily see why. Like, so, for example, if I were to say pain or pleasure, yeah, it might be produced by a biological organism, but that doesn't mean and a biological uh, feature in, in the world, it doesn't mean, necessarily mean that it's not of value in and of itself. It could be value that's being produced by nature, and very many people are actually ethical naturalists and would argue that point. So just pointing out that something is produced by nature and uh, people have their preferences means that morality doesn't exist, I don't think is a very good argument. Then, But I, said, didn't say that, I didn't say that it didn't have value. It can have value for my mind. Uh, what I'm saying is that this value is not objective. Uh, and that you, you'll have to convince me that these feelings or preferences can be objective and that they can be outside of the subject. As okay. far as I can tell, all value comes within the subject and therefore is subjective. And even if value did come purely from our subjective experiences, that doesn't make it subjective. Uh, I mean, case in point would be egoism. Egoism argues that essentially all that we care about is our own satisfaction, yet points towards that being a measurable factor of our existence. So no, that's not actually how that works. Just because it exists in a subjective being's mind doesn't necessarily mean that it's not objective. I can measure the, the let's say, the 
the likelihood you, you talked about, let's say, the happiness of a neo-nuclear neo, neo family, and you actually talked about trying to maximize an individual's subjective experiences in the world, yeah, that would be an objectivist framework. That wouldn't even be subjectivist. You'd be looking at the, the conditions necessary to produce um, a positive subjective experience. And that's actually what I argue as a moral objectivist. So no, that's not necessarily a moral, moral nihilist framework. I mean, a moral nihilist framework would be arguing that everything that we try to attribute something as being positive or negative leads to some sort of absurd conclusion which never actually obtains truth value probably because of some sort of uh, like we live in, a, in an absurd world or um there is no such thing as reality because all there is is technology um which is funnily enough the the absolute opposite of, of what you would like to, to to take which is that like biology for example corresponds with reality and we can explain the physical world in in this way and we are right to do so but a rejection of truth for example in let's say a postmodernist framework would see that as just another language game used to fulfill uh, its own ends. It's self-referential. So that would be more of like a nihilistic framework. What you've described is far closer to an objectivist framework anyway. Um, and then you, well, you talked about... Uh, I will comment about... on this before you move on. Uh, you have been fighting a straw man and personally I'm satisfied with your acknowledgement that all value could be subjective. That is what I mean by uh, a subjective conception of morality and preferences. And yes, you can, you can observe this as a scientist. You can say, I'm going to record the preferences of all dogs in the world. And you would be doing science objectively, but it would be ultimately about something that is subjective. And if you were to make claims about the feelings, the internal feelings of the dog as they uh, enjoy their ice cream or their bananas or they prefer ice cream to bananas, then you would be attributing feelings to something that you don't really know. As, and so you'd be entering an intersubjective world where you're trying to guess the subjective world of something else. And that wouldn't be objective. Well, no, I mean, like one, you could say that like self-consciousness is in and of itself a universal applied to individuals, which is exactly what I argue. I would say that in terms of how we understand ourselves and our identities and how our desire. Oh, like we learn lost... sex. Um, Sorry, you're oh. back. Oh. We lost you for a second there. Like... Am I back? Everything cool? Yeah, you're good now. All right, cool. Uh, I was just saying, like, even if we take, even if we take uh, biological drives to exist from, you know, uh, like food, water, uh, the desire for food, water, shelter, sex, you know, the atypical explanation of how an organism, you know, enters and behaves in the world, we get absolutely nothing from it. It doesn't explain how individuals behave and act in the world, which is essentially why, you know, psychologists and uh, psychoanal uh, psychoanalysts deal with this sort of thing. If you look at it, it's usually tied to structures of meaning and uh, in relation to how they understand the world. So an example would be how desires are sublimated in, let's say, di differently in something like a capitalist system than a communist system, or how um, desires are sublimated in a Christian culture versus a Muslim culture or something like that. Like these all determine uh, just as much as having the drives in the first place, how the drives are actually expressed. And, and, this is why I think the objectivity of self-consciousness is very important. When I look to understand myself, I'm not actually engaged in trying to understand a particular, which would involve the hard problem of consciousness. Instead, we meet at a common ground to produce a technology, which is then applied to our experiences. Because if we did it the other way around, you would find that language itself wouldn't function because I would be describing my experience, you'd be describing your experience, and we would have no access to a common linguistic framework. We have to exist in a common world from which to hold concepts uh, constant and then apply them to our particular 
instances of consciousness. This is why self-consciousness is best, uh, best understood as cultural phenomena anyway. This is why my identity as a British person, as a Geordie, as, uh, as a vegan, as um, whatever you want to describe me as, ultimately relates to my involvement in a language game and a society, not simply my biological development. Well, uh, you seem to attribute a lot to consciousness and what you call technological developments and human culture being additive. Uh, but you, you are discarding here, uh, and, and you did it uh, explicitly in your introduction statement, you are discarding the idea that our mind and our culture and the fact that the fact that we can share this language and understand each other, all of it is determined by genes. Uh, the difference between you and an ape is just a bunch of letters in the DNA. And you are a being ready to hear noises and repeat those noises to your friends and family because of this DNA difference, because of the DNA difference between you and the ape or between, between you and a squirrel. Uh, ultimately, you wouldn't have the brains that can carry culture and that want to carry culture if it wasn't of your genes. And there's plenty of evidence for this in science, starting with twin studies. Uh, the, the way people, the behaviors of people going from wealth to psychiatric disorders to willingness to engage in certain behavior, certain risky behavior or non-risky behavior and capacity to learn uh, human culture. All of it is determined by genes as established by twin study, which are the gold standard for establishing a causal link to genes. So I don't know where you think your mind com comes from, but I can know that you are wrong about it. Uh, your mind comes from your genes and it is the way it is because of genes. And so it's not surprising that most people think about sex, food, uh, peeing and pooing. That's essentially what keeps you alive. And that's our, our, our mind is made. Now, some of us get interested into philosophical questioning and things that are more uh, mundane. But all of it is an accidental product of the fact that we have brains generally evolved to charm the other sex and to reproduce with them. And this brain was subjected to a process of selection. The, the precise process that you were describing in ah earlier, where you said, I can't believe that my, my children will not be uh, will not be exact copies of me. They will change. Oh, yes, they will change. That's the theory of evolution. But it still remains the case that this category of things that copy themselves into the future, but change a little bit and eventually get subject to selection, that is the kind of thing that lasts. That is the kind of thing that you can be sure have a shot at eternal existence. Okay, so... Yes, I, I, I want like I mean like in terms of the causal framework explaining human mind, I'd absolutely reject that. I haven't seen any convincing uh, arguments for why I should take a deterministic framework over another framework. I mean, the most convincing arguments I've seen presented aren't even by uh, biologists or by physicists. They're presented by someone like the philosopher like Schopenhauer, uh, like you know, um, the will can't will itself. You know, like who determines what you want? Well, you can't determine what you want because that forms an infinite regress. <clears throat> um, and I argued against that, uh, you know, essentially uh, already. I would say that one, I would say that we, I, I would take an existentialist uh, framework. Um, I would say that 
an individual can endorse reasons and structures of meaning outside of themselves. And I think that the will and self-consciousness is universal applied to our existence rather than uh, essentially internal coming outwards. So, you know, um, then in terms of like, let's say the biological framework of an individual, let's say causing the way that they think and so on. Um, once again, there is no reason to think that. I mean, one, because it forms like this is what this is like a looping problem in psychology. You uh, you create a theory of mind and then that radically alters mind, which makes it unpredictable. So uh, a good explanation, a, a good way to look at this is something like body language. Um, if I am sitting open, you would see that as perhaps confident, an expression of confidence. If I'm sitting, you know, closed, I'm supposed to be, you know, timid. Now, <clears throat> it's supposed to be a form of pre-linguistic communication or non-linguistic communication uh, to express, uh, to allow us to analyze an individual's states and moods. Now, the issue is everyone knows what body language is, right? So then when you go to an interview, you uh, you sit and you act as if you are happy to be there when you might fucking hate it. You might really hate being there. Uh, and that's the, that's the that is how the human mind works. We acquire information and it radically is modified by that information, which then changes how we behave. Our behavior is never predictable in any given way because it is ultimately the more we predict it, the more complex it becomes. Uh, it's the looping problem in psychology. Um, now, in terms of neurological, uh, a neurological, uh, like, do you, do you have a theory which explains where the human mind, like where consciousness, like how the brain produces consciousness and why it causes consciousness and how it directly relates to it being determinate? Uh, by that genetic structure, because there are physicalists who argue that it's even quantum sensitive, which means it could be indeterminate by nature, which means it's not determined by us. Um, um, well, uh, I can engage on the question of consciousness just to say before uh, what you just said is a bunch of convoluted, convoluted nonsense. Uh, this doesn't contest any of the truths found in twin studies. And since you've never heard an argument about genetics causing our behavior, I will refer you to the article by Abdelawi and Verways, uh, 2021, Dissecting Polygenic Signals from Genome-Wide Association Studies on Human Behavior, a full demonstration that essentially all of our behaviors from psychiatric disorder to our willingness to learn educational attainment, income, IQ, all of it is genetically determined. And how do we do this? We do this by comparing twins that have 100% of their genes are the same, so they are monozygotic twins, or we compare them with dizygotic twins who only have 50% of their genes being the same. So once you get a good contrast between these two populations, you can affirm that something is caused by genes because you can know if a genetic difference has influenced behavior A, B, or C. As it turns out, pretty much all of human behaviors are genetically determined, at least partly, and in large portions for some of them. Uh, now, engaging on the question of consciousness, uh, the thing is, I, I, I don't know why uh, I would be asked in this debate to demonstrate that I have a full understanding of consciousness and that I can program a whole human mind. Uh, it has nothing to do with the debate, but okay, let's engage on it. Uh, we don't have a full understanding of how consciousness in ge is generated, but one thing for sure, it's happening between one, one ear and the other. 
It's happening in a human brain, and it's not happening elsewhere. It's not happening in a rock. It's, if it's happening in some animals, it's very different. Uh, as far as we know, the only way we can get a consciousness in the world is by injecting sperm into a human female and waiting for a couple of years. That is how you create a mind. So yes, I can do it, actually. In fact, I've done it in the past, creating human consciousness. Now, what do we know about the workings of this consciousness? Well, we know that when we press on certain parts of the brain, people will have different experiences. We know exactly the mapping of all of the brain, where we know that you have a motor cortex here that will control your hand movement, your leg movement. We know that you have a brain stem that will control your respiration, your heartbeat, uh, your eyes. We know that you have a prefrontal cortex here that will and all uh, strategic thinking, social thinking, and talking. We know you have a parietal cortex, and if you have, for example, a, a uh, an injury in, in a part of the parietal cortex, you can lose consciousness of certain sp parts of the space. For example, someone with an injury on the right parietal cortex could have what we call leftward neglect, where everything that's to their left, they, they are not aware it exists. And it's scalable. So if they're in a room, they can forget that the left part of the room exists. If they look at a word, they will forget that the left part of the word exists. And if they look at a page, they will ignore the leftward half of the page and they will think there's nothing written on it. Uh, so yes, we know uh, from these injuries and from the manipulation of the brain activities in animal, we know that there are causal links between both uh, feelings, perceptions, and actions and decision-making in the brain. And we know the areas where it happens. Um, well, I will say that I, I would probably agree that there is definitely a, a connection between the brain and more actions and like how we actually engage with the world. Um, whether that means the brain causes uh, our engagement with the world or is necessary to facilitate it, for example, is, is a separate issue. Um, you talked about brain mapping. I don't think brain mapping has been fundamentally proven. I mean, there's been some pretty convincing studies to show why not. Um, people losing up to 90% of their brains but still being able to do considerable amounts of tasks, which they should have lost, um, having perceptions which are still intact. And part of this could be to do with brain plasticity. So I don't think brain, even if it's, even if we accept a physicalist frame, framework. Um, so brain, plus, I mean, brain mapping, I'm not, I'm not even going to endorse. Um, well, the case of the 90% loss of the brain was a very special case of the brain rotting from the inside and leaving actually all of the outside almost intact. So that person had functional neocortex where it matters. That is, all of our cells, all of our neurons, they are stacked at the border of the brain. And when you lose the middle of the brain, you lose really interconnections. So it's not surprising that this person could still do stuff and it, it it matters because the outside of his brain was not affected or less affected well consider it was 90 percent of the brain I would, i'd be very surprised at that but i mean there was also other studies in terms of um similar injuries uh strokes uh how how much uh, how the effects of stroke necessarily has on an individual um you know dementia um, whether we could predict, let's say, what, what faculties an individual would lose, uh, the ability to reproduce those faculties. Um, even like, you know, we have studies which show like, uh, for example, if we were to cut a brain in half and it forms two separate 
um, you know, uh, it's supposed to form two separate personas. One side uh, essentially learns language, uh, already has linguistic capacities, but the other side can then teach itself language. The, 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 there's, the, there's so much involved with this. It's it's unbelievably um, unbelievably complex. And I don't think we but actually all have of this is an answers. argument for the complexity of the brain and maybe for our imperfect knowledge of it. None yeah, of it never, is convincing yeah. me that the mind is outside the cranium. I never said the mind was outside the gradient. I just said, I, I said that. Well, I, um, then I what are we that. talking about? We were I never here said, to talk well, you can about... have a brain. You can have a brain and it not necessarily be caused by ge genetic physical factors, at least not entirely. It's like you can have, like, like, this is the whole point of what I was saying. You can have society and an individual's technological uh, conceptions of self, self-consciousness, directly changing how the brain develops in terms of plasticity. You can have it in terms of um, how we understand the drives from which we're arguably biologically formed so sex drive uh desire for food water shelter that's what's called psychological sublimation this is not even incompatible with physicalism which i do reject but the the it, it, it doesn't necessarily prove a deterministic relationship between an individual and the brain where you could go the genetic structure of an individual determines how they are going to experience life in terms of psychological disorders psychological disorders themselves are determined by how an individual experiences the society i mean like look at it like this like what, what we consider psychotic behavior is in relation to norms and conventions from which we have ultimately understood someone to lose grip of reality and form uh irrational associations like uh and and we know that this can be uh, determined by um, sociological factors. People even argue that uh, an individual who had far less stress, like that, that, sorry, that schizophrenia, if we lived in a stressless society, may not exist. Like the reality of like, overstating the importance of genes and the development of an individual psyche is just not is is something I find unconvincing. And you you once said, I think that I have not oh, stated wait. the the and I have not overstated the importance of genes. I claim that we have measured their importance and that it ranks around fifty to sixty percent explanation for the variance. And in fact, some of the rest could also be genetic. But here you are denying twin studies and having this on the basis of no data at all, but just thinking I'm not denying. within I'm not thinking even, I'm not within thinking i'm not well, you have denied earlier that genes were causal to human behavior that no that genes yeah well you can have genes that relate to so for example you can have a cause that is um not to, like so for example you could uh, like try and explain this you can have something which is influential but not necessarily directly causal so an individual's experience of for example sex not necessarily being genetic so how an individual's psyche develops in their socio-political framework like in their culture their identity their psyche um, determines whether they may have something like um, erectile dysfunction whilst they may be physically capable of having sex like that that's the reality of the situation even the very you like, are extremely biology. confused you are a confused individual who doesn't Am understand I? that something is either a cause of the other thing or it's not it doesn't matter that you can list ten thousand other causes the initial cause remains a cause but you have all these words that you use to because bring your brain into this irrational path because the of denying the initial causality just because you found some other cause everything that's involved in something happening is a cause of it period now one i, I still deny that necessarily prove that you've that you've managed to prove that the brain is is the is what causes consciousness since no one can prove that we have we have fundamentally have no studies to go this is how 
consciousness has been caused by the brain. We know that the brain and consciousness are connected. We know that our physical form and our actions are connected. That, that that's nothing new. This is the mind body problem. No one solved it yet. Like like that's the, just that's just the, the that's answer just the issue. for the brain is quite simple. Every time we make a human baby, it turns out to have a mind, and every time their brain is damaged, it doesn't have the mind anymore, or the mind is changed into something else. So that's how you prove causality. You prove the necessity of a structure, and you prove that without this structure, the thing you're talking about doesn't exist. So whenever you make a baby, and the baby turns out to have a mind, you just prove the causality between the biological cycle of reproduction and what it produces that is the pile of flesh that we are and the mind all right you guys oh, you... Uh, one second here uh everybody tag me with your questions uh we're gonna go to q a here maybe i don't know 15 20 minutes something like that when we come to a a close um and then if you want to tag me with your questions at converse contender or just put the little like tag emoji beside it and I'll collect those questions for the end. We'll leave some time for Q&A. If you want your a question at the top of the list, you can super chat it as well. All right, you guys, go ahead. Yeah, so, like, right, I, I just, like, this is the issue, right? If you're going to make a causal explanation, of, if you're going to try and explain causal behavior, like uh, behavior causally, I think you're going to have to either propose why I should accept a physicalist causal framework over a, a non-physicalist causal framework. So for example, there's a very famous quote by Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, what does he say? He says, um, um, uh, there can be, uh, a law is a transcendent object. A, tran uh, no, a, a law is a transcendental object. There can be consciousness of a law, but not a law of consciousness. The production of a law is actually a form of technology from which we are applying. We are actually engaged in what is an empirical analysis, and in this case, it's an empirical analysis. But it's it's actually a um, it's actually a field of epistemology. Where we're basically trying to fi find truth conditions and then apply it to reality. It's actually an act done by mind. And so, in trying to say that it's causally related to mind and try to propose it as being prior to mind is a metaphysical error that John Paul Sartre is pointing out. If I try and explain something that I have produced uh, conceptually as causing the conceptual process that has produced it, I'm in error, right? That's that's essentially why, the, that's the, 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 the existentialist rejection of, uh, of causal explanations of human behavior. The reality is, is that the ex existentialists just accept there is no cause, there, there is, um, they would say that don't get me wrong like there can be influences both uh cultural there can be um influences biological like in individuals may but then individuals becoming aware of these influences can radically control like modify their behavior that's the looping problem in psychology which i brought back up so when i become aware of let's say like for example my genes may have been if we look at the theory of evolution theory of evolution explains that this has all been essentially a non uh, conscious uh, engagement which has produced uh, where genes are reproducing themselves to the greatest overall possible degree okay now they've managed to produce people who don't want to reproduce anymore a lot of people don't want to reproduce anymore now they won't last they're not here well, for long. It's actually, well, it's actually probably more likely to continue. I think if you look at the decline in populations, and you know, it's tied to, um, you know, for example, uh, was it, um, like, uh, was it education, uh, intelligence, 
uh, as technology and, and intellect grows, we'll probably reproduce less. But the thing is, is that they, and that's what it's like. But then that depends on how people approach the problem. I mean, Elon Musk argues that we should reproduce more because he's like, wow, like, look, like we're, we're actually going to need people and we're going to enslave children to look after old people and so on like that. Now, that's an ethical argument from which may influence people's behaviors. But it's not one that's necessarily coming from his genetic code to tell people like to reproduce because that wouldn't even make sense because he's increasing competition for his own genetic structure to be reproduced again, unless he has some sort of inherent value for the species. Well, why would he have some sort of inherent value for the species? Because let's be honest, if we look at the human history, that's never been the case. We've been tribalistic. We've been nationalistic. We've had, uh, you know, we've had, um, but overall we've murdered each other far more than we've helped each other. And uh, th this is an ethical progression. It's a technological progression. The, the, there is nothing in this position that explains not only why we reproduce, but why we would choose to not reproduce. You can't explain. Can you explain why genes are now producing individuals? Like, let's say that it's all non, like, obviously it's non-conscious. They're not, it's not intentional. So we're not, we're not going to give some intentional state to genetic structures, but this information has reproduced in such a way to produce in other individuals to self-satisfy. Okay. We can agree. Like, let's say it's all about self-satisfaction, but then self-satisfaction ideologically may lead to self-destruction in terms of not actually wanting to have children. So ultimately like there is no Re, like we can't attribute reproduction as being valued by the gene because one it's unconscious if reproduction is not valued by the society that has the drive then the value doesn't exist and it's not necessarily causal because it's only understood by a society and the way it sublimates its desires which are again not conscious of the biological quote-unquote imperative to reproduce so reproduction in and of itself, even the notion of reproduction in this case, is, techno is technological. I will help you through this to understand why are there people who don't want to reproduce. But before that, I want to note the major waste of time that the last five minutes were, where essentially perspective philosophy comes in and says, I created a philosophical world in which causes don't exist. Therefore, all your claims that genes cause minds are not true. Absolutely ridiculous. Lack of engagement with the facts. He doesn't have any comment on twin studies. And therefore, I will refer the more intelligent audience to uh, the article that I talked about and that I named earlier. Those are serious people trying to actually look into uh, what causes IQ, what causes psychiatric disorders. And yes, we understand that psychiatric disorders are socially defined and that ultimately you may be autistic in 2021 and the same behavior wouldn't have been autistic 200 years ago. But so be it, we still characterize and quantify things that are variable like wealth, income, IQ, and those are still measures that are linked to genes in a causal fashion as established by twin studies. Now let's get to that point which you keep bringing back. Uh, how is it possible that there are people who don't want to reproduce? The answer is it's as possible as the fact that there are fish that will bite a green fluo worm and eventually get hooked by it and get eaten by a fisherman. There are baits going around in the lake. Uh, the fish is dealing with an evolutionary trade-off where 
he's been evolving to somewhat find the, the best things that he can buy that brings calories to him, that allows him to survive. And within that evolutionary system, not everything is perfect. In fact, in fact, it cannot be by the theory of evolution. You can only evolve to generally direct yourself toward more reproduction. So fish evolve to bite, to bite on anything that looks different than water and looks like it could have calories. And eventually they get hooked and uh, the good news for the fish is that the more they bait, the more they bite on the, the baits of the fishermen, the more the fish that are left in the pond are evolving because of selection toward not, to, toward being able to recognize the fisherman's bait as opposed to an actual uh, fish. And so that's how the theory of evolution works. It doesn't say all fish will never bite a, a bait, a hook. It says the fish population is constantly headed toward better self-replication, better self-reproduction, and they will evolve away from biting the bait. The same is true of the modern world and what you call education, which really is a form of anti-natalist propaganda, what is being done currently in our universities with leftism, humanist and social sciences, convincing females not to get babies. Uh, all of it is a bait and humanity will evolve away from it. As you noted yourself, uh, we will become less intelligent. We will become less interested in universities and more interested in reproduction. Whenever there's a new bait in the pond, you should expect that it will cause some deaths that may look surprising. But in the long run, populations evolve away from the bait and humanity will evolve away from the bait of university education. You know, you heard it from Jeff himself, you know, Rep uh, you know, have the goal of a dumber society so you better reproduce. Like, I mean, what? Like, <laughs> come on. Right. Um, a philosophical world. Okay. Well, you know, science doesn't exist independent from a philosophical world. In fact, science is actually a form of philosophy seeking to place truth value upon the empirical. Um, so if you're saying I'm making a philosophical world, so are you. That's kind of the point. In fact, as the moral nihilist, you should have been the one telling me that. You should be pointing out that actually we're all coming from, what is it, a... Set, what a, an, uh, a genetically ordained, preordained or predetermined structure, which is leading us towards trying to engage in one form of philosophy over the other. And truth value doesn't exa exist, and we're actually existing in as a will to power. Although, I mean, this is more Nietzschean and not necessarily nihilistic. It, it does sort of fulfill the point. Like the reality of the situation is, is that truth value is in and of itself a social construction dependent upon an ethical structure. Like what do we determine to be cognitive of success? Like trying to say that I'm making a philosophical world and you're not, it's not only dishonest, it's just ignorant. Um, but Absolute uh, revel. But guys... before we move to the Q&A, I would like to come back on one thing that uh, Perspective Philosophy yeah, how said. About, how about Jeff, said if, we somehow... this, if, if I give you um, like a five-minute closing and then I'll give Perspective Philosophy a five-minute closing, you got the first word, he'll take the last, and then we'll move to Q&A. All right, let's do this. So uh, I wanted to come back. Hello? Um I'm still here. Did we lose JF? I think Jeff's dead. Okay, so that means that it it must not be the stream here then. Um, uh, uh oh. 
All right, so he must have left the um, studio, and he'll probably just jump right back in. So um, yeah, that's no problem. I don't mind waiting. Okay, he's back. Um, I might have Hello. to move you guys uh, around. Sorry, I had a connection issue. Mm. Uh, so no I wanted to say about an earlier comment about trans people, and you you said that you were disgusted and that, uh, that bit, I was yeah. kind of denying their humanity when it's not really what I was doing. What I'm saying is that, unfortunately, there are young people currently who are the victim of propaganda and they are being directed in lifestyles in ways that do not respect the principles of medical consent. So uh, without a full understanding of the consequences of your action, you cannot uh, medically consent to an intervention. And unfortunately, I think that we're not pressing on young people who choose this lifestyle. We're not fully explaining to them, look, you are a biological being. Most likely you will be very happy if you have children. And if you take that route, uh, you may eventually sterilize yourself. All I want is that these people be properly informed. And I think that there are certain ages where you cannot be properly informed. You cannot fully make a decision just like we don't let seven years old decide to have sex with adults we shouldn't let leave uh, let young people choose a lifestyle that denies them one of the most beautiful things in life which we know uh, will be <coughs> will be the making of babies and will make them good uh, will make them feel good even uh, so let's go back to the points that well, no, perspective philosophy has. If I, if I may. Well, I, well is this a concluding Let's let him finish his five-minute closing, and then we'll let you oh, have right. the last five, one. It's closing, is it? All right, yeah, sorry. Yeah. All right. You got so, three more minutes. Uh, I, will just, I will just use these three minutes to go over points that we didn't have time to address. Perspective philosophy has said, if I look at the Human Genome Project, nothing in there tells me why murder is wrong. Well, uh, that doesn't mean that murder isn't wrong because of genes. Murder is wrong ultimately because enough people in society agree that murder is wrong. And the reason they do is that we have evolved to pursue murderers, to imprison them and to exclude them from the genetic pool. Uh, so it's still a genetic phenomenon, even if you don't have the feelings associated to it or you can't understand it from looking at the Human Genome Project. This tells more about your inability to see what genes do than it tells me about the, the how things are and why murder is wrong in our societies. Uh, you said the reproduction of genes is not always going to a better world. Reproduction can lead to states of misery and poverty. Uh, on that, I can't, uh, I can't help but laugh at the modern attitude of, oh, we don't still have enough money for babies. When in fact, the ensemble of our ancestors were pounding us into the mud they were they were delivering us without hospitals delivering us in uh in circumstances where sometimes we didn't even have shelter uh and any state you are in in 2021 in any almost any country in the world you are benefiting from a level of luxury that wasn't accessible to 99% of your ancestors yet we know one truth all of your ancestors have succeeded at having babies, and you are the pinnacle of this process. 
of the two parents you have, the four grandparents you have, the eight great grandparents you have. Uh, all of this has led to you, and it has led to you because none, not a single one of these people have decided that, oh, I can't have babies because I don't have a second car. Uh, perspective philosophy said mutations. How can it become something better? It's not me anymore. And perspective philosophy then went on to describe the theory of evolution, which is that, yes, there are mutations. They lead to things that reproduce more. That is how the theory of evolution works. And why genes ultimately are better than memes is actually linked to mutations. It is that genes, they have random mutations, and these random mutations will, yes, sometimes lead to worse outcome and sometimes to better outcomes. But it is always the better outcome that is, that is uh, selected by evolution. So genes, that's how they evolved. That's how we went from the eukaryotic ancestor 2.1 billion years ago to us. It's because the series of mutations were always being selected for the ones that make more babies. Uh, as far as memes, they don't have this property, they don't have random mutations, they are intentionally manipulated by humans. So, because their, their mutations are not random, they evolve in the direction that will serve humans. And that's why they are not fit carriers of your causal influence into the future. It's that people carry memes that are useful to them, and they ignore other memes, and they manipulate memes, they introduce mutations in them, so that they will serve their life better. That's how you become a cuckold, by contributing to useful memes in the world without making babies. Right, wrap um, it up. And uh, then, yeah. wrap it up. Okay, yep. last point. Uh, perspective philosophy said, you talk about bad technologies, but what about bad genes? Uh, my mind is a technological product from years of cultural innovation. That is what he seemed to be saying. And about the bad genes and bad technologies, the great things about bad genes is that they are meant to disappear and they will disappear. Natural selection ensures that if in your line of descent there are errors, there are mutations that lead to unviable lifestyles, non-reproductive lifestyles, they will disappear very quickly. And whatever share of descendants have not suffered from this bad mutation will survive and they will form the future world. That is the beauty of evolution. That is the beauty of genes. Embrace it. Make babies. All right. Thanks for that. Perspective philosophy. Uh, he went a little over, so I'll give you like six minutes or so. Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for having us here. Um, so, yeah. So, I just want again, just to clarify, you talked about better reproduction. You keep talking about better, good, bad, things actually relating to value-laden sentences, um, which you seem to think comes from your preferences. But your preferences, again, weren't necessarily chosen by you because you argue for a deterministic framework. So ultimately, these value-laden structures have nothing to do with any value. You're supposed to be a moral nihilist, man. You keep using them. It doesn't make sense. The only moral nihilist, uh, moral nihilistically uh, sound sentence you actually said there was when you spoke about genes being unviable. That would be more, more applicable to the conversation. When you're talking about genetic reproduction and the production of reproduction of bad genes or whether we should or should not reproduce and so on, you would use terms like unviable 
non-value-laden descriptive sentences because that would explain moral nihilism. But otherwise, we're going to have to exp uh, you know, explain it in terms of ethics, which is a technological structure. When I talk about something being better or worse in the first place, I'm already engaged in technology because it's about truth value uh, and its application upon whether something actually uh, produces a quote-unquote um, positive or negative outcome. You know, that's that's essentially what it comes down to. Does it, in terms of human judgment, and so this is all technological. If if we are if we're even going to engage in this conversation, like for me to even talk about whether genes are better, this is. Uh -oh. All uh, to reproduce, or or whether it be better or worse to. Uh, like uh, essentially produce technology that is a technology in and of itself like that's 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 the whole point of the conversation when you look at a moral nihilist framework you, even the truth value of what you're saying becomes contestable like whether i could even like if i accept an ethical framework from which everyone's trying to gain a will to power and it's all about preferences and succeeding one another in some sort of um not in some sort of deterministic uh amoral sense then truth value in, a, in and of itself, the description of cognitive success that is dependent upon conditions which are non-rational. So ultimately, there's no reason to believe anything. That's why we fall into absurdism. And this is where arguments from moral nihilism relate to absurdism. And you have people arguing for aestheticism and saving, uh, like Nietzsche talks about, trying to save humanity from nihilism and save humanity from uh, from uh, from this th with forms of aestheticism, modes of judgment made universal, and and so on. So, like the engagement in, in aestheticism in, is in and of itself, like the, the the desire to engage in it is in and of itself a moral judgment. You talk about something being good and bad, like the reality of the situation is viable and unviable is perhaps a more a, a more apt description. You said that murder is wrong because enough people agree that murder is wrong. I mean, not necessarily. One, it's hegemonic in our society, so the culture itself is being controlled by a select few individuals. So when you talk about not having a cultural influence, you know, technological influence and just reproducing, you could be reproducing a slave. I, ca I can't think of a more direct way to describe a cook. Like, the reality of the situation is, is that if you aren't producing technology, which is, in, which is changing the individual's self-consciousness, uh, the self-consciousness of the society, the cultural model of society, you're actually going to be producing individuals which express the will of another individual the the notion of cuckoldry the notions of these ethical judgments in in the first place that you've put out are only explain are only explained when we understand that they are productions of a will if i take your framework to be the case you should be arguing for the production of technology at least as much as gen genetic reproduction and even your association with your genes. Why would you associate with your genes? Why would you think that the, the passing genes on is in any way going to create value, which is tangibly good? The whole point is, is that the metric exists outside of the reproductive process. If it doesn't, then there's no reason to think of it as good or bad in the first place. It just is. It's viable or unviable. And that's what you really should have gotten from this conversation. All right, thanks so well, much for that. We'll go to the why do I identify as gene? I want to correct. I don't yeah. identify as my genes. My genes are headed into the future. Jeff, I if, you would correct a... the, if you would correct this uh, in the Q&A, maybe I'll ask you a question and this will come back up and you can just uh, make the corrections when, uh, whenever you get your first okay. question. Yeah. So our first question is going to come from, we had a super chat come in from Mark Reed for $5. says, JF, you said if you don't reproduce, then you uh, become a he's got it starred out i guess he got c star 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 ed um does that mean i'm not sure what he's saying there but Cox. does that cuckoldry okay does that mean infertile people are automatically cheated on that is absurd 
Well, uh, it means that infertile people uh, have a serious problem that they have to deal with. And if, if you've been talking to infertile people, you will know how important that is. Uh, it's very frustrating. Now, I will say don't despair. Uh, you know, my grandmother had been told that she was infertile and didn't succeed at having babies until 26 years old. And she ended up having 11 of them. So uh, don't necessarily believe that uh, some that doesn't work won't work into the future that being said if you are truly infertile uh, then you can uh, still have a way to pass on your genes into the future and it is by caring for the descent of your sisters and brothers all right thanks so much for that it looks like our next question comes in from uh, sorry I'm having trouble reading this um, Read more. Um, sorry if I mispronounced that. It's spelled a little different. But read more says, um, "What is JF's explanation for the effects of environment or epigenetic control or of genetic expression?" Sorry. Well, epigenetics is uh, is a almost a fraud in the way it's being presented in the modern times by certain scientists who are extremely interested at, at demonstrating its existence. But what it really is, is not another form of genetics, and it doesn't question the theory of evolution in any way. Uh, the epigenetics is the fact that certain genes can be turned off or on in certain places of your body. And some of these turning off or on can even pass across generations. So for example, a, mice that's been, a mouse that's been exposed to a lot of stress can make our epigenetic markers on DNA passed on to her children, which will uh, lead to her children to be more stressed or more responsive to stress. Now, none of this is against the theory of evolution and against the primacy of genes in the theory of evolution, because here's the catch. Epigenetics is just a meme. Epigenetics is just a technology, the kind that uh, perspective philosophy was talking about. Yes, it can pass from one generation to the next, but it's all genes operating the passation. And genes are doing it because it's to their advantage. If it wasn't advantageous for genes to pass on the stress of the mother to the children, they wouldn't do that. And so we're still within evolution, and it's still genes playing the game here. All right, thanks so much for that. We have a super chat just come in from Deadpool3E. says, I asked JF before about showing proof for his claims. However, the paper he sourced is not on the only peer-reviewed, uh, in quotes, um, and challenged by other papers, but is nothing but correlation causation fallacy. Uh, no, it is not correlation causation fallacy because there's a part of the paper that just catalogs uh, all, almost all twin studies that we have. And twin studies are not correlative. Twin studies are something that tells us causal information about the genes. And it's as, as close to a laboratory experiment as it gets for human behavior in that you start off with new beings uh, preferably from birth, who are separated from birth due to terrible events, uh, and you study how they fare in life 
based on their genes. And so, no, it is not correlative. The GWAS are correlative, but it's not the point. When I quote this paper, what I want you to look at is the little bars that represent the twin studies. Twin studies are not correlation. They are natural experiments. They are somewhere between a correlative and a causal experiment. Now, as far as these studies being contested, I don't care. The contestation must be valid. You have to tell me what's the argument. If you're going to have an argument against twin studies, uh, okay. <laughs> I've never heard one that was contesting the fact that a twin study establishes a floor for the minimal genetic causality of humanity for their behavior. All right, thanks for um, we have a question for Perspective Philosophy. Bo Badger says, Ask Perspective Philosophy, if material brain does not influence consciousness, why do material drugs alter my experience? Yeah, I, I never said that the material brain does not influence consciousness. It's not something I would I would care to argue. I think that that would be overstepping the limits of what I could express it's whether it causally determines consciousness so like even if you take let's say a drug um let's say you took something like uh with a predictable effect let's say something like acid and it, form it causes a hallucination it doesn't necessarily lead to like something like uh, psychological deconstruction or some of the uses that it has in terms of what people actually take it for like to analyze their environment to analyze the phenomenological experience and in many ways that it only um it only reinforces what we call phenomena like phenomena, phenomena. So if you have what is material, that would be, that would be uh, pure physical, uh, pure physical being, right? The phenomena is the combination of idea and material uh, to form the objects that we see around us. That's basically what I think we live in. We live in a combination between idea and material, and that's the fundamental nature of reality that we cannot get out outside of. So if material changes, it does influence reality. It does not necessarily the only influential um, aspect of reality. And drugs are a great example of that. The physical world can change around you, and your perception of the physical world can change around you um, because of this drug. If this drug you know, forces you into to see an object differently, the object actually changes for you what, what it means, um, how you engage with it, the experience of space and time and the expression of certain uh, concepts onto the world uh, change fundamentally for you, which is one of the reasons why these drugs are so, um, well, dangerous at times, but also uh, helpful at times. They can be quite medicinal, depending upon like how they're applied. And that's why there's so many different studies coming out saying, well, this could be used as forms of psychological treatment because it allows for uh, uh, the, the deconstruction of an individual psyche. So when an individual sees a certain um, material um, object, it actually is in relation to a signifier or um, you know structures of meaning, which is why let's say like someone with like schizophrenia. There's a, actually a, there's a video on YouTube of, of a guy with schizophrenia who every time he sees uh, like someone do this with the fingers, he believes that it relates somehow to homosexuality and how they're you know saying that they're going to commit homosexual acts. Now there is nothing necessarily in seeing this behavior that would inform someone of that act, but what you do see is the an individual mapping that onto the onto the the fingers like onto the behavior but also what you have to understand is that some things in 
in what he's mapping are fundamentally necessary for him to have an experience at all, which is what Kant argues in his transcendental argument, that there are necessary mental conditions to have an experience of the physical world, that notions of causation cannot be explained through the empirical analysis of the world, which is exactly what David Hume argued when he said that causation itself cannot be, cannot be seen between two objects. If you see one ball hit another ball, there is no notion of causation. Causation must be a relationship between ideas, and that's what Hume argued. Kant said, no, for you to experience the ball, the, the motion, the space-time analysis uh, experience of reality, you've already applied concepts to it. This is a construction of mind and material and not just material itself. All right. Thanks so much for that. Um, we have two Super Chats just came in. One was a comment one was a question. So uh, Breaker sa says... Um, Laughs in French. Where is my math bag, baby? Um, so That's an inside joke. I was about to say that. That sounds like an inside joke. Um, but you, I'm kind of jealous. You guys got some sweet European accents. It gives you extra IQ points in, in the United States. So uh, with that, we'll move to our next question from it William. It does not help me with the British. I can tell you that. <laughs> my, my accent does not help me with the British. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> we got um, William Kurt uh, for $10 says, JF, subjective preferences don't get you very far. Why should I care about your subjective preference if you argue for moral nihilism anyway? Assertions are just assertions. Absolutely. And I don't invite you to care for my preferences. I invite you to follow the propaganda that will lead you to not have babies and will be done with your genes in the next generation. All right. Thanks so much for that. Um, now, I also want to use the opportunity because Reed Moore was unsatisfied with my earlier super chat answer. He says, I know it's not against evolution talking about epigenetics, but it affects following generations based on environment. JF seems to be sidestepping the point. Uh, no, I'm not sidestepping it. Uh, the thing with epigenetics and any cultural influence going into the future generations is that because they are bound to serve genes, because uh, if that influence is bad, people will evolve to ignore it, the same way the fish evolve not to bite the bait of the fishermen. And so... And if they are good for their reproduction, they will listen to it. So in the end, what I'm saying is that culture is not different from all of the rest of the phenotype. It either serves the genes or it disappears. All right. Thanks so can much I, for that. Can I ask a, can I yeah. ask a quick question? Go ahead. Uh, I'm just wondering what you mean by the word interest, like the interest of a gene. What is that? The interest of a gene simply means the amount of multiplication that it can expect from a, an action in the universe as to how much copies of it it will lead to be present in the future. Mm. And why would a gene want to do that? It doesn't want cognitively, but we know that mathematically what happens with things that copy themselves, like genes, uh, they are headed always in a direction toward more copying. That, that's just a fact of mathematics. Once you replicate yourself and you mutate, you will be mutating and replicating in the direction of always ever increased reproduction. So if genes aren't cognitively capable and you know, able to you know, have a will, then how are they able to enslave technology epigenetically to their own interests. 
because you can enslave without having a consciousness. What do you mean by enslave? Well, you can start applying controls and outputs into the world that puts other structure under your control without wanting it. Uh, something can be accidentally imposing control on some other things, and that's what genes are doing. Mm. So you don't mean enslave, and you don't mean control. You don't. You don't mean enslave. You don't mean anything to do with interests. Really, what you mean is, you know, influence or determine. Well, uh, you are do you are restricting the definition of enslaved to cognitive entities, and I, I don't care about uh, debating semantics. All right, so let's uh, let's move forward now. Um, we have th Josh Anders. Thanks for these uh, uh, for subscribing just now. Um, also, we had someone comment. Uh, Rado says Converse post debate show at JFG tonight. I'm guessing that's. JF's channel. Um, okay. And yes. so let's move JFG on to our next... tonight, I will be having a post-debate stream. Okay, so let's move on to our next question from Tails. It says, don't you think that this debate is circular? Because to value genes as more important than memes idea, slash ideas, isn't that in itself an idea slash a meme? Uh, um, instinct is instinct, but we are more. Well, we are not more. Uh, we uh, Everything that you may want in life is ultimately determined by your brain and how your brain approaches reality. And your brain is the way it is because of your genes largely, perhaps because of some environmental influences also. It really doesn't matter. You are a machine to have preferences, and those preferences are largely affected by evolution. All right, thanks so much just, for that. But in though. Uh, if you want to say just something, to say that, I really like that question. Oh, okay. Saying, like, that was a really nice question. I think that sums up uh, pretty much one of the main critiques I levied here. Thank you. Awesome. So our next, uh, we had a super chat just roll in from William Kurt. Uh, again, $10 super chat. Thank you. Says, so you, you don't argue for moral nihilism. Do you not value genetic reproduction? Uh, you claim this isn't universal, yet argue for a universal ethic only directed toward genetic reproduction. Well, uh, the answer for moral nihilism is I do argue for moral nihilism, but I'm not a, a moral nihilist militant. So I'm not trying to convince you. If you ask me why I, I believe in moral nihilism, I will answer, but that's it. Uh, do I value genetic reproduction? Yes, I do. But as a personal preference, you can value something else. Uh, and you claim that this isn't universal, yet argue for a universal ethic only directed toward genetic reproduction. I'm not arguing for a universal ethic. I'm just telling you what the state of things are. You are a biological being. Every part of how you are constructed are meant to lead you to reproduction. The feeling that you have when you have an orgasm, there's a reason why it's 10 times more pleasant than eating ice cream or doing some other things. It's because your genes knew that this moment, this moment where you inseminate a female, had to be marked by a great subjective experience to mark 
the inf the projection of your existence into the infinite future. That's all I'm saying. You're a robot that's been built to inseminate females. Mm -hmm. Now, you can do whatever you want with this fact. You can revolt against it. If you revolt against it, all that will result in is that you will disappear from existence and people who revolt will not exist in the future. All right. Thanks so much for that. Uh, you guys, you know, I, I'm, yeah, can I ahead. just say this? You know, like death that happens to us all, Jeff. Like you will die and your genes aren't you. Like they're not going to be you forever. You are going That's to That's what I wanted to come back on. So now future. that you're giving me the opportunity, I will come back to it. <laughs> Go ahead. I don't identify as my genes. I consider that my genes are going forward into the future. What I am is just uh, what was described in uh, in the uh, Fight Club movie. You are not special. You're not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You're the same decaying organic matter as everything else. We're all part of the same compost heap. We're the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. I'm merely a secondary effect of my genes that are trying to find some way to advantage themselves. And I like to think that they did. They created someone not so bad, but I'm just part of the same compost heap as everything else. And I'm just a temporary expression of a much longer and much greater and much more beautiful process. All Beautiful. Right, I mean, that's a very specific word to use. I mean, even when you say the words trying, you can't help but apply some sort of normativity onto this framework. Yet you say you're a moral nihilist, but every fucking time you describe genes, you describe them with having some sort of conscious will. Like, like you're the one that argues for like evolutionary biological approaches that are supposed to be morally nihilistic. This should all be different. You're the one who sees consciousness everywhere. We'll get like, JF the you, last you're word since the question was for him. Go ahead. Okay. Well, you're seeing consciousness everywhere. Uh, if my words annoy you, I'm sorry. Uh, but as a moral nihilist, I can have as much preferences about the world as a moral objectivist. And I'm sorry you're annoyed by that. All right. So let's. I'm, we've got a couple super chats, but they're all for Jeff. And I want to get to um, another question for um, Perspective Philosophy. So he's not just hanging in the background there. Um, so. One person didn't, um, they didn't put this toward anybody specifically, but it says, do memories influence behavior? And, um, and then we had another one. So if you guys want to, um, these are just, I guess, for anybody because they're not labeled, but it says, isn't ultimate, isn't ultimately a false dichotomy. Memes can't exist without genes, but memes have greater information complexity uh, capability of transmitting ideas which genes alone can't so do you want to kind of take that perspective well i think that like like even the idea that memes can't exist without genes is fundamentally not necessarily proven i mean like even if we have to accept that genes are the only forms of consciousness that can exist. I mean, developments in artificial intelligence and perhaps the emulation of a human brain, for example, um, or, you know, and, and, you know, you could emulate a human brain based off an algorithmic design. You could break down the genome, construct a human brain, emulate it, um, you know, re you know, reconstruct it based off what you would think the ideal pro profile of a human brain would be, you know, so totally done algorithmically. And then you have a computer that could emulate a, an artificial human brain. And I mean, this is assuming physicalism and then that would produce consciousness, right? Um, in theory. Um, so in terms of like memes necessarily even like the like genes necessarily even being needed to produce uh, 
means uh, that's not necessarily even the case. Uh, you could have technology which is uh, self-reproducing. And I think actually, you know, I think JF even talks about this in relation to, um, I think, uh, you know, like, uh, what's it, um, like eugenics and stuff like that, where it could leave um, the hands whether of of humans like the computer having an influence on the genetic reproduction of of uh, humanity i think you mentioned it on one of the episodes that i recently watched where you said um you you know uh, the you could have um uh well i think you know what i think you said a revolutionary phenotype could be produced um by the breakdown of the three um yeah with the three uh was it uh, safeguards given into genes, you know, the naked warrior and all that. And then you said that this could all be defeated by uh, the influence of a computer and that this computer then would have its own influence on the genes and the genetic structure from which we could be incapable of controlling. And you saw that as perhaps a negative. I just see that as, an, as necessarily even arguing that memes are not necessarily deterministically, are not necessarily, uh, are not necessarily, <laughs> What's it? What's it? Dependent on genes. Well, right. uh, it's true that memes can be carried by computers, but I note that perspective philosophy said what he said: technology could become self-reproducing. What does that mean? It means that technology would have genes. All right. So um, let's move on to the next question. Um, you guys, thanks for uh, being here. Thanks to Debom and Heather Shannon for just subscribing. Um, I see you guys coming in, so I really appreciate that. Um, let's, we're going almost two hours now, so let's uh, try to get through these last questions. Let's just try and do like a speed round or something and just answer you know, as, as quickly as you can and still give a fairly comprehensive answer. Um, we got a super chat from Squishy um, Kinnis. Sorry if I butchered that, but it says, JF. If what you call evolution actually prefers just quick reproduction, then why did it lead to complexity that led to slower reproduction rates? Because the genes don't have a concept of time. They care about copies in the next generation, but they don't have a concept that waiting 30 years for having your baby matters. All right, thanks so much. We got another super chat says, JF's referencing of twin studies is a from Deadpool 3E. Sorry about that. Um, JF's referencing of twin studies is a meme, and he's been exposed as such on Reddit. He ignores that the studies have few volunteer twins, researcher bias, problems with tests, including IQ, etc. Well, uh, you can have all these critiques, and at best, you're going to say that the twin study may have not converged toward a total precise evaluation. But I don't see anyone coming with their twin studies that would be better, and that would show the contrary that the current twin studies are doing. So at some point, you have to look at these little peekers that, that look at details, and you just have to ignore them. Make your own twin study and come back to me when you have better. I mean, they, they don't have to do that, though. I mean, you could have a, you could have something that does. You don't have to prove something false for it not to be true. Uh, I'm relying on the best available evidence, and as long as these little complainers don't have better evidence, then I'm going to still rely on the best available evidence. All right. So uh, thanks for the quick responses, you guys. And I, I took a, I took my video off just so that it might help improve the stream. Sorry about the technical difficulties tonight. Uh, OBS has been acting up for 
a lot of people right now for some reason. Um, we had a question for perspective philosophy from Rado. Um, he says, you said one doesn't control how their genes replicate, but why do you think one controls meme replication? Would Marx approve of any form of communist practice to date? You know, that's actually a really, really great point. I think that, um, and, and you know, I reference Nietzsche a lot in this, uh, primarily because, you know, the expressions of will um, uh, can be, you know, determined by power structures. So even, you know, like our understandings and like whether how we are going to reproduce the expressions of our desires and all that can be sociopolitically ordained by will of other people who long dead. And I think Marx really uh like hits this home when he talks about like the when he when he really introduces hegemonic power structures as, ex as explanations of how individually uh cultures um control the populations and how we are all uh, um expressions of the will of the powerful in certain class systems and so on um and and it's not surprising i think that in terms of meme repro reproduction i think that this this all actually comes down to whether we can associate with structures of meaning from which we did not create. We're all born into a world from and introduced, indoctrinated into a language which we could not have created because it was created before we were born. In fact, it might even be created by our genes because we might be indoctrinated into a language and a linguistic structure that is not genetically tied to ourselves. So you could you could have a, a an individual raised in an alien world and he could still be indoctrinated into their forms of propaganda right the reality of the situation is that can he come to find meaning in his life in that scenario he or she find meaning in their life in that scenario and this is i think the the, the best um argument for this that i've found was in hegel but is given in a really nice way in a book called um continental philosophy um a free will and continental philosophy uh, the death without meaning so one of the this is really arguing that if we have a hierarchical structure from which an individual's will imposes a certain you know um, ideological format upon us, we don't own it. It's a master-slave dialectic. They're the master. I'm the slave. I'm told how to think, feel, and express myself in so many different ways. Can I find? Can I take control over that? Now there's two arguments. One, the relationship is mutually dependent, which is why the that Hegel first argues that the master is dependent upon the slave and in such a dependence already internalize an aspect of the slave. So the slave already has an influence on the master. Language is a mutual endeavor. Uh, technologically, technology is a mutual endeavor. It cannot be one-sided, otherwise it will fall into something like nihilism. Um, it'll self-destruct. The, the next part of this is essentially whether an individual can rationally concur with the forms and structures of meaning in their society. I would argue that they can, that the capacity for reasoning um, can allow an individual to essentially find themselves at home in the conclusions within their society, that they can say that this is an expression of their will. They can endorse it and will it for themselves. They can radically reject it as a form of, you know, um, like in some sort of like, like, like the French revolution, they radically rejected the form of the structure of their society or in a Marxist Leninist revolution. Um, but this might be an action of bad faith alone. Like they might be, you know, determined by the positive. I'm only doing this because that other thing exists. Um, or they can endorse it freely without thinking and not actually have any say in why it is the way it is. The true foundation of this is the consideration of, op of whether you should or should not endorse any given ideological format. Um, and in that it requires existential, anal existential analysis 
and um, you know the cultural analysis, even through psychoanalytic means, which is exactly what people like Slavoj Žižek do. And you say that would Marx condone many of the Marxists that he found, finds today? Probably not, uh, and I, I would, especially not on YouTube. So <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's a really great, uh, really great point. And I think that we can find ourselves at home in technology, but not necessarily are we the owners and um, contributors and directly. Uh, willers of the technology that will come to pass. I don't necessarily okay. see this as, as something fundament fundamental to us, but we are all, all right. part of self-consciousness. All right. Thanks so much for that uh, answer. Um, and thanks to RxD for subscribing. Um, glad to see you guys coming in. We, um, I feel almost a duty when I do these things to ask every question. I've even heard debaters complain like, he's, oh, he's going to ask every question, but we're not going to be able to get to all of them. We need to wrap up in the next four to five minutes. So I'm just going to go with um, the Super Chats that just came in. We have one from Deadpool3E. And if we could just have a brief uh, – uh, this is for you, JF. If you just do a brief as possible on your um, on this question here. Uh, $10 says, JF values genetic reproduction only for certain groups based on subjective biases. Keep in mind, we're talking about uh, eugenicists who um, – has an epistemic idea of evolution uh, could is maybe he's trying to say Gould is spinning I'm not sure if... it's drivel I'm not answering alright I mean I actually heard someone call you a race realist um, you don't argue for example anything to do with race realism and the reproduction of only certain groups of individuals for that reason do you? how would you in the same sentence say that re consider race realism as arguing for certain groups reproducing what are you talking about i'm saying don't do understand you race I realism. Ask, i i i i anyways let's move to the next question because i'm not even interested in, at engaging with such dishonest questions all right thanks so well, much if you think it's wrong so, like here's just a, here's just a thing do you think that it's wrong for let's say certain ethnic groups to reproduce or not or not my to reproduce silence, my to silence re will last longer in humanity than any of your technological ridiculous development perspective philosophy all right so all right, let's, let's move on to the next question we have a super chat coming in from william kurt for five dollars thanks so much says so you're a moral nihilist because we're an effect of our genes how does that follow? Why would a deterministic framework negate moral realism? I'm not a moral nihilist because we are the products of our genes. I'm a moral nihilist because I do not see in any moral framework an explanation of what makes these axioms objective, axioms of well-being, axioms of consequentialism. That is why I'm a moral nihilist. All right. Thanks. Um, I will. I will quickly just put mm -hmm. an answer. You can't actually argue that a deterministic framework can lead to absurdism, which is why, let's say, if it's all a competition of wills, the foundations of truth and what truth value is become a competition of wills as well. So when we talk about what actually is and why it exists and uh, what knowledge claims are and notions of cognitive success, if we understand that to be purely derivative of um, opposing wills um, uh, determined by um, predestined causes, then you can't argue for a moral nihilist framework from that. But it also can become uh, self-defeating because um, accepting that principle, the very truth, the very notion of truth can be lost, which means there'll be no way to prove that it is actually the actually the truth. 
um, which uh -huh. is essentially why why skepticism can be self defeating. All right, thanks for that. Those uh, uh, for interacting with that question, you guys. Thanks, MB, for the sub. Deadpool three e another ten dollars super chat says what JF is saying is. Use a flawed study to disprove a flawed study using this logic. JF, make a peer-reviewed study emphasizing gene value and the connection of IQ and race. First, you bring the, qu the question of peer-reviewed. I don't respect peer review as a process. I don't care. Go read the entire book by Robert Plumman, and you'll see that there are literally thousands and thousands of studies that stack toward demonstrating that genes cause behaviors in humans. All right, thanks what so much mean, for that. You don't respect review. That's nonsense. Like, how are we supposed to work out whether something is correct or not correct if we're not using well, a standard of measurement? Well, certainly not by asking to random people, anonymous people. They're not university. random. I mean, they're all they're all they're all experts in that field, and that's why the that's the whole point. You, you get people who understand the methodology to see whether or not this actually lives up to the to the claims that it's making. That's that's it's it's a, it's the foundations of truth, like approval or dismissal, dependent upon certain notions of cognitive success. And in in terms of the d scientific method in a deductive format, that, that I mean, like you can't reject, like you don't have to be absolutely ridiculous. To this is an argument review. by expertise, an argument by oh, the person holding the idea is an expert. I will let people of the regular chat judge whether experts are trustable after the last two years of COVID-19 crap. All right. Thanks so much for that. Um, we have a question for perspective philosophy. How do you from um, Bo Badger says, how do you derive ought from an is to say that we ought to care about experience of beings? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a really great question. I actually answered this question in a much more developed format on a video on my channel uh, titled um, morality is objective, even if there's no God. Essentially, what I would argue is that when we talk about is statements, and typically when Hume talked about is statements, he took them to be purely descriptive. If you can find an ought, if there was an ought within, a drive within a descriptive statement, um, like uh, something which is uh, prescriptive within the descriptive statement, uh, th that, that can explain it. So, for example, you, there's, two, there's two ways to look at this. There's what's called supervenance, uh, metaphysical supervenance, when an ought implies a prescriptive explanation of a thing. Um, and then there is functional concepts, which is what uh, Alistair McIntyre argues in his book After Virtue. So essentially, you have um, things that can only be explained if they contain a function, which can then be in which then we can apply um, notions of um, um, essentially value notions to them. So um, let, let's take someone like being a like a watch. You can only describe a watch with the function of telling the time. If it wasn't um, able to tell the time or if it didn't have the function of telling the time or it never was intended to tell the time, then it would not necessarily be able to be described as a watch. And then we can talk about whether it uh, told the time adequately or inadequately. Um, it's the same thing with uh, like, or, or a guitarist. You talk about an individual being a guitarist. It implies that they can play the guitar. It implies a function which can then um, be judged as positive or negative. And this is why um, Hume's, you know, Hume's guillotine isn't necessarily as um, crippling as we used to think it was. All right. Thanks so much for that. We're on our last question. William Kurt for $10 says, and how does this genetic determinism account for contradictory opinions? If two people with contradictory views propagate their genes over time at the same rate, what is the preferable worldview? 
Well, this is what we call a neutral gene or a neutral phenotype in evolution. They don't give you an advantage of fitness. So the, the two lineage can continue into the future as long as what they do doesn't cost them their baby-making abilities. What will happen is that the structural cognition of one of the lines will eventually be met with environments that either make their cognition good for their fitness or bad for their fitness, in which case it will either multiply or disappear. All right. Thanks so much for that answer. You guys, I really want to say thanks for everybody being here. Thanks for all the great questions. Sorry if we didn't get to one of your questions. I want to thank the uh, debaters here. Uh, for spending their time and, and, and taking time out of their schedule to be here and have this discussion. Whether you agree with uh, neither of them or you agree with one side, I feel like there was a lot of uh, information shared here, and so a lot of ideas are, I'm sure, being critiqued. Thanks for all the people who have subscribed. I've just seen the Cave of Time subscribe. Thank you, buddy. And um, with that, I just want to say again, thanks to you guys for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was great. Yes, sir. You guys take care. You too, man. Yeah. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.